Welcome to Utah Silvestre, a four-part mini-series of the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance's Wild Utah podcast. I'm your host, Olivia Juarez. This is episode three. Una nota antes de empezar. Si quieres escuchar este capítulo en español, seleccione el título en español. Herencia y querencia is a southwestern phrase in Spanish that roughly translates to inheritance of the place that holds my heart. The word herencia has two definitions, heritage and inheritance. Inheritance refers to the spirit of public lands. The mountains, canyons, and valleys throughout Utah are passed down in their natural state by previous generations to us here today. We will leave these lands for those to come. This is a sacred function of our social structures in the U.S. because it puts us in direct relationship with past and future generations simultaneously. It means our community has to choose what our relationship is with these places. Are we going to have a relationship with La Tierra that will leave the beauty, solace, and ecosystem healthy for future generations? Or are we going to leave something else? Herencia also means heritage, another word that accurately describes the significance of public lands to everyone living in the U.S. and its territories. Many cultures have their own stories and connections with the landscapes of America's Red Rock Wilderness. I hope you are up for a surprise because we have some exciting stuff in this episode. We will discuss how Southern Utah wildernesses are a part of Latino and Hispanic histories and cultures with Dr. Armando Solorzano, professor of ethnic studies, as well as family and consumer studies at the University of Utah. Without any hyperbole, I consider Dr. Solorzano to be the Utah Latino historian. He has authored a number of articles about Utah's Latino histories that are published in several journals and books, including his book, we remember, we celebrate, we believe. Recuerdo, celebración y esperanza. Latinos in Utah. Something that is fundamental to me to frame this conversation and is the fact that I identify myself as a Latino, as a Mexican-American, as a mestizo people. You're going to probably hear from me a very strong defense of indigenous values. And that is because my father is a native Mexican or whatever we want to call them. Uh, but my mother is French descent. So I personally embody this mestizaje, this combination of indigenous people and European people. And that is exactly what frame our conversation. And I think it's, it's important for everybody to understand that we share these two heritage, these two great traditions. That's why, again, it makes us to come out with a different worldview of how we understand this society. We will also reflect on the significance of the public trust. You may be wondering, especially if you're an immigrant or don't live in Utah, are public lands my inheritance too? The answer is yes. This episode, we will show you why. Talking about herencia, or inheritance and heritage, of public lands means going way back in time. So, let's talk about the first inhabitants of Utah Silvestre. 
The history is a long one, dating all the way back to what archaeologists call the Paleo-Indian period, in which Clovis peoples from approximately 11,500 years ago lived throughout the place we now call Utah. Native peoples of many different cultures, traditions, lifestyles, and languages have lived in and traveled through Utah since the beginning of time. Some of these people today are the Ute, whom Utah is named after, the Goshute, the Shoshone, the Pueblos, the Paiute, and the Diné, or Navajo. These tribes have significant histories in Red Rock Wilderness, and their futures are connected to the well-being of these landscapes. This is also true for other Native peoples whose tribe may no longer be in the region or is not federally recognized. I also want to acknowledge that we only have enough knowledge to specifically recognize tribes that exist today. Over time, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of indigenous people have at some point called the landscapes of America's Red Rock Wilderness home. Recognizing the past matters. It gives us a picture of just what we are inheriting with public lands. Public lands are held in trust for every single person residing in the U.S. and its territories. According to common U.S. law, we share ownership of these landscapes throughout the West, and that means we get what's on the land too. The thing with this is, we are inheriting what doesn't belong to us. When we inherit public lands, we also inherit kivas, historic hogans and sweat lodges, burial grounds, pictograms, petroglyphs, metates, pottery and pottery sherds, cooking areas, ceremonial sites, places where food and medicine live, and so much more. None of this is something that anybody can actually own, and much of it is especially important to the cultures and life ways of Native American tribe members in the region. There isn't a more accurate word to describe the significance of Utah wilderness than the word sacred. It's sacred because it's historic. It's sacred because it heals. It's sacred because it nurtures. It's sacred because it has influenced people's cultures and languages. Many of those stories aren't mine to tell. But what I can say is when we work for the permanent protection of Utah wilderness in its natural state, we work for justice and respect to native cultures today. What I do want to tell you about is a story about the first Latinos of Utah Silvestre. How long do you think Latinos have been in Utah? Go ahead, make a guess. I'll help by working back in time. Utah was once part of the nation state Mexico. Until 1848, with the signing of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, the red rock, mountains, and forests that characterize Utah were a part of Mexico. Before that, we know that in the year 1765, the Spaniards made their first encounter with Utah and regional indigenous communities when they traveled through what would become southeastern Utah on the Rivera Expedition. This was followed by the Dominguez Escalante Expedition of 1776, in which more Spaniards encountered a great amount of Utah's wild landscapes before westward expansion would follow them. Many Hispanics and Latinos have Spanish heritage. So thus far, we are looking back at some 250 plus years of Latino cultural heritage in Utah. 
But I wouldn't say these men were the first Latinos of Utah Silvestre. Not by far. To tell you the truth, this question, how long have Latinos been in Utah, is a lot trickier to answer than just going back in time. You see, up until the year 1518, the entire mass of land that we know as North America today was inhabited by millions of Native Americans and nobody else. Everything changed when the Spaniards arrived on the continent and continued to colonize northwards and southwards over a period of 300 years. Until the year 1821, a great mass of North America was known as New Spain. Then it became the nation state Mexico. So to answer the question of how long Latinos have been in Utah, we must ask another. Through all that time and change, how did the people in New Spain and then Mexico and then the United States refer to themselves? Did they consider themselves Latino or Hispanic? And this is where the answer is complex because the region has always been multicultural. There were Spaniards, there were indigenous people, each of these communities having their own languages and cultures. Suffice it to say, North America has been a very diverse place for a very long time. People here have always had their own identities and relationships with the environment. You hear this when you hear Native and Hispanic residents in the Southwest say, the border crossed us. You hear this in the historic journal entries from the Dominguez Escalante expedition, which recognizes the three boys from the Timpanogos Band of Utes that guided the Spaniards around the Colorado Plateau. Most importantly, we know this because communities have the right to name themselves as they see fit. Utah was a part of Mexico. Mexico, as a nation state, came from the colonial New Spain project. Before all of that, the land, the entire region, was inhabited by thousands of tribes, pueblos, bands, and other communities of indigenous peoples. People had all sorts of names for themselves, and I imagine that not one of them was Latino or Hispanic until recent history. However, our ancestors were among these original indigenous inhabitants of Utah Silvestre, including the Aztecs and Maya. So to answer the question, how long have Latinos been in Utah? It isn't a straightforward answer. Our people have been here since before anybody called us Latinos. Those roots extend deep and far back in time. Some academics claim that the time goes back thousands of years prior to European contact in the region to a place called Sego Canyon. What I'm about to describe is best known by seeing it yourself. So if you can, plan a trip to the Sego Canyon rock art interpretive site. The site is in between two units of America's Red Rock Wilderness, Desolation Canyon to the west and Diamond Canyon to the east. You can get there on a mostly paved and then well-maintained dirt road that any car can drive on in dry weather. There is a pit toilet at the site and it is on public land in an incredibly wild place. So remember to come prepared for the outdoors, take nothing but pictures and leave nothing but your gratitude. Sago Canyon runs from the Desert Valley north of I-70 into a wild forested landscape called the Book Cliffs. There, 
Several rock art panels with paintings and carvings tell stories from different indigenous families over a large period of time. The biggest panel features paintings of great figures painted in red on the rust-colored sandstone wall. Rock art is notoriously difficult to date, so it's hard to say how old the panel is, but the style of the paintings, also called pictograms, are attributed to people from the Archaic period who lived in this Red Rock region over a long time span, from 8,000 BC through 500 AD. One of these great red painted figures in Sago Canyon is called Venus, also known as Sayus. On the wall, Venus stands tall, holding two snakes, which represent the cycles of the planet Venus. Venus as the morning star, and Venus as the evening star. In 1980, Dr. Cecilio Orozco recognized several of the glyphs on this Sago Canyon rock art panel. He knew them from what's on the Aztec sunstone. You may also know the sunstone by another name, the Aztec calendar. The sunstone was carved in Mexico in the year 1479, which means that the rock art in Sago Canyon is at least 1,000 years older than the Aztec sunstone. In 1990, the Deseret News reported that Dr. Orozco and his mentor, Dr. Alfonso Rivas Salmon, identified glyphs that are depicted in the Aztec colander and rock art throughout Utah wilderness. They include snakes with four rattles, knotted rope symbols, and other figures dividing time according to the four-year and eight-year cycles of Venus. In addition to Sago Canyon, the researchers found these very symbols on pictographs at the head of Sinbad, Black Dragon Canyon, Barrier Creek, and Horseshoe Canyon. All of these places are in Utah's Red Rock Canyon country. According to Dr. Armando Solorzano in his book, We Remember, We Celebrate, We Believe, this discovery led anthropologists to suggest that the Aztecs started their pilgrimage to Tenochtitlan, Mexico City, from Utah. Many people and scholars believe that Aztlan is in Utah, and I know there is a lot to talk about this, and because, again, this is our homeland. This is where we ancestors were born. We never crossed the border. We are always here. And with other anthropologists from California, with Dr. Cecilio Orozco, found that in Seco Canyon, there is a gerolift of Sias, which is uh, the mother of, of fertility. For or in our indigenous tradition, everything has to do with life, flowers. So this gerocliff is about 500 years old, and I'm talking about B.C. So that already put us 2,500 years of 1847. So what is fascinating about this goddess is that this same goddess, Zeus, appears in the first circle of the Aztec calendar. And as we know, the Aztec calendar uh, was finished by the Aztecs by the year 1438, which to me, it means that the Aztecs or the Uto Aztec or the group of native people start their, their pilgrimage 
to Tenochtitlan, to Mexico City, here in the state of Utah. And the evidence is there. It's not a coincidence that the same goddess in here is already present 1,900 years ago in the Aztec calendar. This procession, this uh, pilgrimage of the native people started in Utah, and in their way, they were constructing the Aztec calendar until they arrived to Mexico City. But the evidence is that the beginning is here. Some believe this to be wishful thinking, mythical thinking at best, because of the relationship that this theory has with the place called the Atzlan, which is the mythical homeland of Mesoamericans, specifically the Mexica, also known as Aztecs. I do understand what the word mythology means. Mythology doesn't mean something that is grown or something that you create or something that is false. No, mythology is a set of ideas or images that move people to action, right? So when people try to differentiate, oh, that's an Aztec mythology, it is, it's not that it's false. It, it is a set of beliefs that give us identity, give us purpose, and put us together. All human beings, all civilizations have mythologies. Without mythologies, we cannot have histories. So again, if we put it in that way, those are evidence. And let me push it a little bit more. Push it in the sense of bringing people to conversation. Or people, or indigenous people, or Mexican people, or Mexican-American people, or Latinx people, presently are part of the landscape in Utah. There's debate on whether Atzlan is a real place or more of a concept. But these artifacts in America's Red Rock Wilderness have led Dr. Solorzano to posit that if it is, then it may be in Utah. But he also recognizes that the theory about Utah's connection with Atzlan is one among several. We claim that Aztlan has its origins in Utah. Okay. Some other anthropologists in Mexico City, oh, no, 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 it, it has its, its origin in Nayarit, in, in Jalisco, the state of Michoacán, right? Some of the people say, no, 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 it's in Florida. Another version said, no, 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 it's in Wisconsin, right? From our point of view, it doesn't matter. Those places might be points of departure, not points of convergency, right? So, yeah, the fact that we find manifestations of different indigenous groups in different areas of North America is normal because we were continuously journeying. This is something that our society doesn't understand. We are always walking. We are in the way. We are always following. We are a journey people. Another reason Dr. Solorzano posits that Aztecs may have been in Utah is found in the Uto-Aztecan language family. The language group includes Shoshonean, the language of the Utes, and Nahuatl, the language of indigenous people all across Mexico today, and the language spoken by the Aztecs. 
the youths that live right here in the Uinta spoke the same language of the Aztec people. To me, that means that they were together, right? Of course, you know, we need to think about indigenous people as people who are moving continuously, right? So again, the group of indigenous people who ended up in Tenochtitlan, meaning Mexico City, again, start from the same linguistic roots. For some of you who are interested, you can go back and revisit the work of Professor Mauricio Misco and some other uh, linguistics who have been traced this connection with uh, the youth people here in the state. The Aztecs, or Mexica, are the ancestors of many people of Mexican descent. All this talk about Atzlan and how Utah was Mexico might have you thinking that Latino history in Utah is Mexican history, but the cultural connections are even greater when you look at the regional perspective. Not far from the southeastern reaches of America's Red Rock Wilderness is a place called Chaco Canyon. In the 1890s, archaeologists took cups that were used by ancestral Puebloans between 1000 to 1125 AD from Pueblo Bonito, a site in Chaco Canyon. Then in 2003, an archaeologist, Dr. Patricia Crown, thought the cups looked similar to cups made by the Maya in 900 AD. You may know of the Maya by the grand buildings that stand upon the Yucatan in Mexico. Descendants of the Maya and the Maya themselves still live in Central America in modern-day Belize, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, and Mexico. After asking a Mayan archaeologist, Dr. Crown confirmed that, indeed, these kind of cups were used by the Maya for drinking cacao. As a result, Dr. Crown analyzed pottery shards that she excavated from Pueblo Bonito to see what residue might be on them. The results confirmed what everything else pointed at. A lot of theobromine and a little bit of caffeine. It was cacao, the essential ingredient of chocolate. 1,000 years ago, cacao made its way from Central America to the Colorado Plateau. And it seems that the ancestral Puebloans were using cacao in much the same way as the Maya. The skeletons of 30 scarlet macaws, the large red, yellow, and blue parrots which inhabit the Gulf Coast of Mexico, Central America, and South America, have also been found at Pueblo Bonito in Chaco Canyon. Feathers from scarlet macaws and military macaws have also been identified at Bears Ears National Monument and near Canyonlands National Park. The feathers were used by ancestral Puebloan people. But how did these bright plumes get to canyon country? Trade between Mesoamerica and the Colorado Plateau played an important role. After dating macaw remains in 2015, scientists agree that macaws were acquired persistently from Mesoamerica between AD 900 and 1150. What does this all suggest? That the indigenous peoples of the Southwest had relationships with Mesoamericans, the ancestors of many current-day Mexicans, Central Americans, and South Americans. Latino ancestors were a part of the same historic world as ancestral Puebloans in Utah's canyon country, a world which we can only know of because Utah wildlands have remained in their natural state. Mesoamericans and people on the Colorado Plateau 
interacted with each other, influencing life in Red Rock Country and across the continent. So when we protect Wild Utah, we also protect Latino history. Because America's Red Rock Wilderness exists in its natural state, it's possible to preserve a history of the astonishing feats of pre-Hispanic long-distance travel and cultural exchange in Utah and the U.S. It means uh, increase the consciousness of who we are and the responsibility we have to the wilderness, to uh, Mama Pacha, because if we destroy this landscape, if we destroy this wilderness, we are destroying ourselves. We need to take consciousness of that. This is not a matter of politics. This is a matter of seeing all of us interconnected and dependent to the land, to the environment. Utah wilderness remains crucial for archaeologists to learn more about the relationship between Mesoamerica and the Colorado Plateau. As a nation, we do not yet know everything there is to know about American history from Red Rock Wilderness. Any loss of America's Red Rock Wilderness is a deficit to science and cultural preservation, which may well include ancestral Latino cultural preservation. So the answer to the earlier question, how long have Latinos been in Utah? In short, we've been here since before we were called Latino or Hispanic. Since a time when our indigenous ancestors traded with ancestral Puebloan people as long ago as 900 AD, and maybe even longer. Latino cultural herencia of public land is told in names as well as the archaeological stories that are told through Utah Silvestre. The place names that characterize the regions of America's Red Rock Wilderness are also marked by Latino and Hispanic influence. Just take a look at the map and you'll see them right away. La Salle Mountains, San Rafael Swell, Virgen River, Mexico Point, Mexican Mountain, the San Juan River, Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument, even the Green River, which was first called the Rio Verde by the Spaniards. Each of these places throughout Utah Silvestre were named by Spanish and Mexican nationals or are names given in honor of them. They are the names of places held in public trust for every person who calls America home. Of course, these places and everywhere else in America's Red Rock Wilderness have different names in the different languages of tribes in the region. But as the map reads now, Hispanic and Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latine cultural influence is written onto public land. In summary, herencia y querencia means that public land is our inheritance and our cultural heritage. And we are responsible for what we inherit. Every member of the public is responsible for respecting how important Utah wilderness is for the past, present, and future of indigenous cultures all across the continent. One way of showing this respect is to advocate for the lands to be protected 
and to advocate for traditional knowledge in public land management when tribes are calling for it. This is what justice is, and this is why we have worked for the permanent protection of Bears Ears National Monument. Through public land, Latinos and Hispanics also inherit some of our own stories. For decades now, people who wield the force of white supremacy have made Latinos and Hispanics to feel as if they don't belong in this place, be it in Utah or in the United States. But they didn't know that in the Southwest, on the Great Basin and Colorado Plateau, that we are already home. From the stories of Mexica ancestors in Southern Utah to the archeological materials such as macaw feathers, we can see that our roots extend into the bedrock of Southern Utah. And when we get there on a mesa or in a canyon, we know in our bones that this place is sacred, that it's home. To me, again, when you ask what is the evidence, I will say you are the evidence. I am the evidence. If you are looking for the evidence, just look at our bodies. <laughs> look at our history. Look at our ancestry. Look at how beautiful the land is. Look at how beautiful we are. <laughs> the Red Rock is uh, my motherland. In our indigenous tradition, the, the earth is our mother. We call it a Mama Pacha. The earth is sacred, is the origin of life, and is everything that we inhabited. I cannot see myself without the red rocks, without the, the wilderness, as, as we call it. So I'm part of it. I'm not just describing it, but I feel I am part of that. These lands tell our histories and affirm the deep connection that Latinos and Hispanics have had with the land of the United States. They affirm that we are essential to the American story. Now I want to tell you about the laws and government structures that are set up so we have the ability to protect wild Utah and our herencia. As you remember from episode one of Utah Silvestre, 8.4 million acres of public land in Utah that's overseen by the Bureau of Land Management is in its natural state. These lands are influenced by the BLM, by Congress, by the U.S. Department of the Interior, and by the President. Each of these decision makers answers to you. As a member of the public, there are several ways that you can ensure these decision makers in the government represent you well. Mostly, it involves speaking up through the spoken and written word. At SUA, we make sure that you are aware of public comment opportunities so the Bureau of Land Management can care for public lands in ways that reflect your values and your vision for wilderness in Utah. We also ensure you are connected with your members of Congress so you can tell them why the canyons and pinon juniper forests matter to you and you can ask for their support of America's Red Rock Wilderness Act. You can reach Congress through a lot of channels. Some include writing a letter to the editor of a local newspaper, writing to them directly, or calling their office, or by making your community seen and heard at a public demonstration, such as a rally. These are a few examples, each of them a display of querencia, or love in action. 
What they all have in common is public participation. Let's clarify what we mean by the public. In short, it means everybody living in the United States and its territories. We really mean everybody. All members of the American public are public landowners and are able to influence public land management, not just citizens. Here's why. First, you don't need to be a citizen to reach out to Congress. Citizenship is required to vote, but it's not required to let your members of Congress know how you feel about public issues, including protecting wilderness. If you're a resident and call somewhere in the USA your home, you still have two senators and a representative in Congress that represent you. You are their constituent. You are, or will be, a taxpayer. You're accounted in the census. Your opinion and contributions matter. In the 2016 Supreme Court case, Evanwell v. Abbott, which concluded that a state can design its legislative districts based on total population rather than the number of people who can vote. The late Justice Ginsburg wrote, Non-voters have an important stake in many policy debates. This case recognized the entitlement that all constituents have to influence policies such as legislation through their representatives and senators, even if they can't vote. Therefore, regardless of your documentation status, as a member of the American public, you have the ability to advocate for issues that matter to you, and Congress owes you their ears. So yes, citizen or not, you are allowed to advocate for America's Red Rock Wilderness. Similarly, you are allowed to participate in public commenting periods hosted by the Bureau of Land Management. This is true of any available opportunity to make your opinion known by the BLM. The Bureau of Land Management is run by leaders who are appointed by elected officials and staffed by workers, people just like you and I who really love nature. Oftentimes, it's their duty to ensure that the public has input on projects and other activities regarding public land that they oversee. SUA was formed in 1983 to ensure that the BLM heard from people who honor and respect wilderness. That's us. My message to you is that regardless of how long you've been in Utah or the U.S. or even your legal status in the country, you are a public land owner, just like everyone else. And you are allowed to speak up about public land to the Bureau of Land Management and their governing branch, the U.S. Department of the Interior. Utah's outstanding wild public lands do not just belong to Utahns or to U.S. citizens. They belong to all Americans, regardless of where you come from. They are held in trust for you, for the more than human world, our plant and animal relatives, and for generations to come. The word querencia translates to love, fondness, affection, or attachment, especially as it relates to a place. Many languages have been spoken on the Colorado Plateau for thousands of years. Spanish is a pretty recent one, but it's been here long enough that it's transformed a word for love 
into a word that means love of a place, querencia. It's literally a word that was first used to describe how sacred our people's relationship with the land in the Southwest is. I'd say Dr. Solorzano feels that querencia. The reason to keep fighting for wilderness, for the environment, for the air, for Mama Pacha, for keeping the sun and our sister moon that is so appreciative, especially in those romantic nights. <laughs> our community members have had querencia for the mountains and canyons of Utah for many, many generations. Public lands conserve the past, honor the present, and protect the future for so many lives and cultures. It is truly nuestra herencia y querencia. Now, it's more important than ever to make our querencia for Utah wilderness known. Being vocal about protecting Utah Silvestre is for the conservation of our cultural histories, for honoring our community members' relationship with these lands today, and for creating a future that is about thriving rather than just surviving. To guarantee ourselves a just and healthy future, our country has to protect 30% of land and water in its natural state by the year 2030. Community action is crucial to getting our government to fully recognize and validate the incredible power Utah's wildlands have in protecting our lives our futures, and our cultures. Herencia y querencia, or inheritance of the place that holds my heart, is the power that will protect land for our communities, past, present, and future, and more than human. Will you stand with us? The last episode of Utah Silvestre is up next. Please subscribe if you haven't yet, because the next episode is about taking all of your new knowledge and putting it to use. We'll talk about Latino support for public land conservation, and then discuss how you can get to know America's Red Rock Wilderness yourself. Utah Silvestre and the Wild Utah podcast is recorded at SUA's main office in Salt Lake City on equipment purchased through the generosity of our members. SUA is primarily member-funded, Over 90% of our revenue comes directly from people who care for Southern Utah's Red Rock country. We're proud of that because it keeps our voice independent. If you can financially help protect Wild Utah today, please head to sua.org and click the donate button. Thank you for your support. The theme music for Utah Silvestre is Quasi Motion by Kevin McLeod, featuring a red-winged blackbird. Cover art is by Mariela Mendoza. Editing? is by Stephanie Garcia of Pro Artes Mexico and Laura Boroshevsky. The producer and co-host is Olivia Juarez. Co-hosting and Spanish translations are by Amy Dominguez. To stay informed about Hispanic and Latino-led wilderness advocacy, visit us at sua.org forward slash silvestre. We can't protect Wild Utah without you. To get involved, text the words Utah Silvestre to the number 52886 and follow the link. SUA is on Facebook, on Instagram and TikTok at Protect Wild Utah, and on Twitter 
at Southern UT Wild. Please follow us and subscribe to Wild Utah wherever you listen to podcasts. On behalf of SUA, I'm Olivia Juarez. Thank you for taking the time to listen. We hope you can join us for the next episode of Utah Silvestre.